Welcome back, guys. This podcast is brought to you by RPG Coffee Company, a veteran-owned and operated socially responsible coffee company born to support members of the military, law enforcement, and firefighting communities by donating 50% of their profits. The true secret to living is giving. And don't forget to join the RPG Coffee Club today. Don't wait until you run out. Stay ready to rock by having RPG Coffee delivered straight to your door each month with our coffee club. All right, folks, thank you again for tuning in to another episode of Bucks of America podcast. Thank you again for everybody tuning in. It's been kind of a fun ride. I've been bringing on some very unique uh, guests this time. This time around, I'm really focusing my 2021 series on bringing all different facets. And tonight's guest is unique because it's like he's only been on three podcasts. He just completed a backcountry hunt. And so he's kind of green. So he gives us a different perspective on what we go through. But he's also got a background in survival. He's, he's associated with Fieldcraft Survival. And his name is Austin Lester. And he's been on another podcast of ours called the American Sheepdog Podcast. And he he, right during the whole time frame, he was talking about his upcoming hunt. So it's like, I think this would be a great way to bring in the newer listeners that have not been out there. And you can listen to his mistakes, but also his successes and some of the experiences he got to do because he wasn't actually hunting. He actually got to be the one doing all the media aspect of it. So those that are looking to, to become a media guru or trying to become getting to, into do that filming and photography of backcountry, Austin will be able to provide us a good perspective on what he went through. But also I want to have him introduce himself and talk about where he grew, grew up, his roots. And the nice thing is we also have a veteran. So thank you, Austin, for your service to our country. Yeah, and, thank you. Uh, thank you. You're very welcome, sir. So Austin, you know, why don't we start in in high school and let's build us build your your timeline up until today. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you for that introduction. I appreciate that. You're very um, welcome. So, yeah, um, I'm in, from a really rural town in uh, North Carolina. So uh, if you've ever seen the old black and white TV show, uh, Andy Griffith, about the local sheriff, you know, I'm from that town where that was made. Uh, no Mount Mary. So, yeah. So I'm actually from about 40 minutes even deeper into the woods past okay. that. So, um, I, my high school was, uh, was really small. I went to... Um, I went to the class with all the same kids I'd gone to class with from grade school, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I think we graduated with 56 people. So super tiny uh, and super remote. But um, what was interesting is, is growing up and in, especially in a rural area like that, farming was really big, tons of acreage and, and farmland and um, very dense forest. But mm-hmm. um, so having a growing up kind of in that preparedness mindset where a lot of people relied on the land and relied on hunting and fishing and, foraging and things like that for actually uh, a way of living was, was kind of unique. And they actually um, ended up, they would just close school the first week of deer season every year for archery and rifle because nobody was going to be in class anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I kind of wish they would do the same thing around mm-hmm. here. I know up North they do stuff. They, they kind of uh, treat sturgeon uh, um, fishing as a holiday because uh, during the winter time, that's what they do. And something mm-hmm. cuts down. Now, yep. w- since you were from North Carolina, did you guys, did, did your family get ever get involved in, in ginseng? Uh, so my family didn't. I had a couple of really good friends of mine that were like fiends with ginseng, man. They would go out and they'd find it and uh, collect it. And, and there's actually, you can actually make quite a bit of money finding oh, yes. it and selling it. So um, I, I never really got into it. Um, 
I never caught the fever, I guess, so to speak, but I, I did have some friends that were really into it. It's almost like a family tradition or you almost got to be born into it to get mm-hmm. on top of that because you got to have land back when the government was giving out land because now if you have a ginseng uh, field or something like that in your yeah. area, it's like that property is limitless to how much money you can bring yeah. in. And oddly enough, Wisconsin has quite a, quite the following for ginseng. It's not mm-hmm. really well known because we have a very small growing season, but it's it's here and we have it. It's just, it's not really highly talked about. We do have a big uh, culture for morel hunting. So that we have that. Up oh there. yeah. Like, oh yeah. You, I can see that for sure. Cause I'm sure your area got, had to get uh, a, a nice growth season for morels in your area. Didn't you? Oh yeah. So um, foraging was one of those things that I never, I never understood the value of until as I got older, right? Like mm-hmm. I started out at, you know, I was in boy scouts, you know, and um I mean, the motto is be prepared. So we like learned from an early age, you find the value in those little things. But I just, I was like, this is dumb out here collecting all these plants. And I don't, I don't see the point, but as you get older and you start to incorporate that into your lifestyle, like, yeah, that for me was like really eye opening. I was like, dang, like, and then even when I went to the survival school for the air force in Washington state, there's a huge portion of it that you can forage for your food because there's just such an ecosystem there that supports it. Um, but I, it was really eye-opening to me um, how important it really is, especially when you're looking at like a homestead kind of perspective. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree because like there's a traveling caravans that come through here and we have actually some states had to readjust their uh, legislation regarding forage because there's people that would just come in there and just engulf an entire area and just pull it all out and turn around and sell all, sell the, uh, the either chicken in the wood, pheasant, uh, pheasant mushrooms, uh and then morels, of course. And uh, um, my mom was big into morel uh, fish or morel hunting back in the day. And she'd come back with bags full and stuff like that. Yeah. Had the whole science down to it. And we, it was nice being able to, because like when I was really young, I was really appreciative because, because it would be January or February. And like my mom decides to whip up something with, with venison and morels. So it's like, it was just, yeah. and it would put throw in some uh, onions to create a fantastic dish and so it's oh, like she yeah. was always very clever with it using some like uh, uh brown gravy and mixing yeah. it all together it's just fantastic oh, cool. delicious like those are those are those fond memories and like as you get old that's where you really get appreciation yeah. because it's like yeah. it's cold outside you don't want to go to the store but you have this can and that's it's always been a thing it's been canning and i think now with prepping and uh people really seeing that the the, the idea is that there's only really six major companies that own all the production of mm-hmm. livestock and uh, vegetables and like it really makes you think it's like how how just in case if something goes bad what's going to happen so i have another guest that i want to have on down the road that he works for a mosaic and what they mm-hmm. they produce phosphorus and if it wasn't for this company there's like six mines worldwide if these ever dried up we would see the biggest famine ever because of for fact due to factory farming for corn and soybean and all the other things we use it, we ha- they need to spray it down. They need to put the phosphorus right. and nitrogen back into it because there's nothing mm-hmm. there. There's nothing left there. Right. If these, if these yeah, ever go out. It, right. And it's, it's, a, it's a scary feeling for the masses. And that's why, I, I mean, I, I've always enjoyed that aspect of growing and being connected with, with the food that I eat and it, or as oh. close as I can be. But ha- seeing that that capability is there um, from an early age, instills a lot of confidence in me and mm-hmm. an ability that I could provide for me my family and, yeah. and my friends, you know, should the time come. That's pretty legit. So anyways, getting back onto your, cause now you were 
we were talking about foraging, but now let's move into you. You got the appreciation from that. I want to find out where from high school, you said you joined the military, correct? Yeah. So I actually worked um, locally for a, a rescue squadron and, and local EMS and did that and, mm-hmm. and worked as an EMT and then firefighter paramedic for a little bit. And um, it gave me a lot of perspective on a lot of things uh, as far as maybe another um, road of preparedness, another view of it, and, and mm-hmm. to be able to see the world through a different lens. So, uh, you know, I, I did a video on this for the Fieldcraft Survival Channel, but, um, you know, I had a, a, an incident happen, a car accident, head-on collision. I responded to it. And over the course of it, it took me four minutes from the time I got into the, the rescue vehicle to get mm-hmm. to the accident. We even had first responders on the scene within two minutes of the accident and the patients um, expired and passed away before I even got there. And okay. it, it really caught me off guard, not because I hadn't experienced death up until that point, but because it happened so quickly. And, and when we investigated the death and what had happened, they'd actually broken their legs, which the bones compromised their femoral arteries mm-hmm. and they bled out. So it, it made me really aware. It's like, even though first responders were there, they couldn't get inside the mangled vehicle uh, fast enough to be able to treat those patients. And had they had something, maybe had they had a tourniquet with them, they may have been able to apply a tourniquet and save their own life. And so I started seeing how, well, man, maybe I'll just take a couple of tourniquets and put one in each of my doors and put one around my visor and, and just taking a step in those directions. And I started seeing that more and more. And, you know, I would try to tell my friends and my family, these experiences I was seeing and, and it opened my eyes up to that world of like, man, there's, there's so much that happens that we may be able to facilitate taking care of ourselves a lot more instead of solely mm-hmm. relying on a, a 911 service to, to help me. But I need to get, I need to train my family. I need to train my friends on, on some of these basic like life-saving techniques and procedures mm-hmm. that you can do, you know, like how to, like how to apply a tourniquet and stopping the bleed, things like that. But um, you know, to me, that's something that, you know, I would rather spend a semester in school doing that in high school than, you know, learning some of the other dumb stuff that I think is taught, you know, and that's stuff that you save yourself, you save your family. And yeah, it's worst case scenario, but I mean, it's, to me, that's just like paramount. So it really gave me a really unique uh, perspective of things at a very early age. Cause I went through EMT school when I was still 17 and okay. I actually had to wait a month to get my credential after I finished the course, because you, ha- you have to be 18 years old to hold the, the paper credential. So, okay. So you actually were an EMS before you joined the air force, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I did that before I even joined the air force. So what uh, motivated you to join the air force? Um, uh, honestly, man, I feel like it's a really cheesy way to say it, but I, I just have this like strong conviction of like helping people and, mm-hmm. and doing things for my community. But I, I wanted to take it up kind of a notch and I just wanted to help on a bigger scale or, or do something like that on a bigger scale. And I thought that, you know, joining the military was kind of the way to go. Um, and I, I had a few buddies and I actually had a couple of flight medics that were in the, that worked for the County that I worked for. And, yeah. Um, I really respected those guys and they were both former military guys. One was an air force guy and one was a, an army guy. And I really respected them and to hear all the stories they told and the perspective that they had of the world, not just their community, but their mm-hmm. world at that point of the world. And I was like, man, I, I it just drew me in, you know? So I actually tried to join the army and then um, the army recruiter was like really finicky. And then I, so I moved to the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps guy was, 
was kind of halfway in, halfway out. The, the Air Force recruiter was, was the only guy that was consistent. So I was like, well, this seems like the branch for me. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. You know, it's like one of those things where you, whoever you relate to, it's, it's weird today. Cause I actually had a couple of uh, work during work. It's like you build that uh, trust in somebody. And when, as, as that person loses that respect, it's like, you're going to gravitate the people that you know, that you're going to come to the get, gather the information that's necessary and mm-hmm. such. And it's like, I have bad news. So it's like, there's no way I could be able to join. So it's like, I do what I do now because it's like, I, I this is my way of paying back. Cause these guys serve the country. My job is to make sure they get seen in front of credible practitioners which has been yeah. a fun experience and uh I, I took a deep dive here a few weeks ago into your into your uh uh instagram and your photos are just beautiful and how you capture the lighting and the and the uh the exposure and stuff like that and did you g- uh, have an eye for the camera before you joined or during so uh it's well first thank you for that i appreciate that um, you're welcome but i i got i've always been really kind of uh, creative, artistic, you know, and, um, I was into art growing up my whole time. And I actually did like some, like some sculpture and, mm-hmm. and ceramics. And I got into that and, uh, painting and drawing I've done my whole life. But, um, I remember being 15 or 16 and, uh, one of my good friends, Aaron, uh, he got really into photography and I was like, man, that seems kind of cool. It, it reminds me of like painting a picture, but mm-hmm. essentially I'm just I can get really creative with the camera and the way that I do it and find something unique. And I went out and bought a Canon AE one, like an old film camera and mm-hmm. um, played around with taking film photographs and things like that. And it, it kind of piqued my interest a little bit then, but then I, I didn't really mess with it after probably a couple of years then of just shooting with film. And mm-hmm. I didn't pick up another camera until actually, um, gosh, it was October. October-ish. No, it was probably December-ish of 2018. Okay. I just got home from a deployment and um, I bought a camera with some of the money I saved while I was gone and, mm-hmm. um, and messed with it a little bit and then just didn't have time because I was right when I got home from the deployment, it was, you know, as you can imagine, things were busy and um, I was an NCO. So I was, I just had a lot more leadership duties to do and kind of fell back off again. And then in June of 2019 I picked it back up I was working for a shooting range uh, mm-hmm. locally and was shooting some photos for them and teaching some fundamentals courses and things like that and uh, that's actually when I met Raul Martinez from okay I was, I was gonna just ask you that's where you if you met him because it's like I see yeah. a lot of the pictures and it's like I almost feel like you took those pictures of Martinez because mm-hmm. some of his content is just yeah. fantastic <laughs> yeah and I it, it was funny because I, I didn't really know um early in 2019, I saw, um, this little ad popped up on one of my social media, I think it was on Facebook or something. It was this, uh, mobility bag. And then it showed me another one. It was a visor panel, like this Velcro piece that hooks Mm -hmm. around your visor and there's a pouch that you can rip off. And I was like, I was like, Oh my gosh, like that's like, that's exactly what I was wanting, you know, back when I was a paramedic, you know, and I was working in it. I wish I would have had something like that then. I, and I bought them like on the spot. I saw them and bought them. Yeah. It turns out that was, that was Fieldcraft Survival's early products. And okay. I didn't even, I didn't even correlate the two when I met Raul and um, I shot a few, I, we met and he introduced himself to me and I was like, Hey man, I'm just going to take a few pictures, maybe make film a little video for this range just so we have some content. And he was like, sure, just send me kind of whatever you, uh, whatever you take and um, we'll do something with it, you know, so I can post it on our social media. And I was like, okay. Uh, right on. And at that point I wasn't trying to do anything professionally for, with photography or videography. It was more just a hobby. 
And he was like, man, this, this is uh, this is some pretty good content, you know, like, would you be interested mm-hmm. in doing this for the company? And I, I was really taken back by it because like I said, I hadn't ever pursued anything. And actually the first time I ever filmed a guy shooting a gun was that day in that class with Raul. And I didn't tell him that I was just like, yeah, sure, man. Like I'll, I'll do whatever uh-huh. I can to help. And um, you know, long story short, I ended up getting into a program where I could intern at a company for the last six months of my service obligation. And uh, so in October of 2019, I, I started this internship program and worked six months as an internship, as an intern for Fuelcraft Survival doing media. So it was, it was a quick turnaround, but it's crazy how it all worked out. You know, it's like it's for some people 2020 look at it, it was a negative aspect to their lives. But for those who like you, you I was listening to a friend of mine, Thaddeus Owen, on a, on a recent podcast. He talked about like how you if you if you breathe out positivity, you, the world opens up and you get you, you, you get shown these opportunities that you'd never thought of. Like 2020 was a fantastic year for me. It blew up for you as well. And so it's just, we're just constantly just building and we're grinding it. But I can appreciate your love for photography because I was like, I've been a photographer. Like I'm not really a prof- photography, but it's like a photographer, but I have been really enjoying this since back when film was still a thing. Yeah. And so it's like, it kind of, it, it's just, it was something that my mom always liked me like, here, you take the camera. It's like, and so I t- took it and I just kind of went with then taking pictures mm-hmm. and, and having and developed. And then digital came along and went out really well. Then the new media and a podcasting came around mm-hmm. and I really, I took like two years to like really learn on what I should do right. and how I should organize stuff. And I got to thank like Joe Rogan and, and Steve Rinella and Randy Newberg because these guys produce some fantastic content. It's like, I would like to be one day, like be recognized as one of these folks, but it's like, you know, I'm just here to work and have fun and collect stories. And it's like, I've always yeah. liked the aspect of film and, and such, but it's like, I was never, didn't want to be in front of it. I liked being behind it. Yeah. And it's like, this is my way of storytelling is grabbing Absolutely. folks like yourself to tell these awesome stories. And it's like, something will trigger us somebody and all of a sudden they want to do it and the biggest thing is like if you if you can set your change your course in your life in one day just mm-hmm. if you set your mind to it and if you don't all you're doing is teaching your brain that's like it's okay to give up yeah, and if you just it's like and that's where your discipline and your structure and your insult that's where things can change like if you don't beat yourself up if you keep on stumbling or something gets in your way the biggest thing is just don't quit yeah absolutely man and, I, and that's what it was for me is uh it, it almost came across in my mind that I'm drawing a picture here. I'm painting a picture here. And by no means am I any kind of crazy talented artist. I just really enjoy it. And it's a, it's a creative, it's an outlet for me. And, um, but when I picked up a camera and I, you know, and I'm looking at whatever my composition is, whatever I'm photographing or filming it, I get to pick how the viewer sees that. And I get to pick how that information is articulated by the, by Mm -hmm. the, you know, the consumer. So to me, there's a, it's widely creative and it kind of opens you up to whatever, whatever you want it to be. Right. And Mm -hmm. even as you deep dive into understanding the settings and the camera and you can, you can change the shutter speed and the aperture and all that and actually get more creative the further you go. And then that's not even talking about editing a photo and how creative you can get. And some guys go Mm -hmm. like way deep into the weeds and Photoshop and and, and doing crazy stuff. And I'm much more of a, I like to think and, I, you know, what you see is what you get. Like I snap the picture, maybe I'll bring out some colors and things like that, but that's about it. I don't do any of the really in-depth artistic side of that, but 
Um, I think that the art for me, the creative side and the art for me is capturing, uh, if it's a photo, you know, I have one, uh, you know, snap of the shutter to capture a moment that tells a story. And that's a lot more difficult than a video, in my opinion. Like I, I started with video before I even did photo, but, you know, to be able to, to snap the shutter and I get one frame to show you what I'm trying to articulate, and mm-hmm. especially, and a lot of what I do with my social media is I try to educate uh, survival preparedness and, and things like that. And it, one snap, the shutter, you know, that's a, you, ha- you just have to go about it the right, the right way, you know? And so it's really unique and fun for me. Yeah. That's why when Rogan brought it, Adam green tree, it's like never heard of the guy until he was on a, a podcast a couple of years ago. Then I stumbled and then I started following him on Instagram and his photos are in the way that the, the captures everything. Yeah. It's like, it's inspirational because it's like, I've been in those scenarios. Like I've been hiking in the backwoods of Arizona and hitchhiking through the Rocky mountains and going through the big horn with a backpack on it, just walk upside the mountain, just hope nobody yeah. hits me, you know? And uh, it's just, it's just seeing all these pictures. Like I almost kind of wish it that when, when the economy crashed in 08, it's like, I kind of wish I had a better camera, but I did take a bunch of pictures when I was traveling around and such. I did take a, uh, a uh, audio uh, diary of stuff that I came across and mm-hmm. it's like, and so it was, it's in, so I, I, I don't know if I can retrieve it from the phone. I still own it. I just don't know if I can make it work. It was on this yeah. uh, simple old, old T-Mobile phone. So, yeah. and it's, it's just fun and how things have all spun out. And, it kind of leads us up into our segue. Like what opened the doors for you to get hang out with the Easton guys? Yeah, man, that, that for me was super, super awesome though. Um, like, and it really did because Mike had been communicating with the Eastman's guy, uh, the Eastman's guy, Scott and Ike and, um, mm-hmm. talking to them for a while about a lot of different things. And, um, he had been writing a few articles for them and, and mm-hmm. things of that nature. And, uh, and what was really unique is, um, whenever they hit me up, they wanted me to come out and just like, Oh, we're thinking maybe we'll have you snap a few pictures. And, and from my experience in, um, the media world, which is very limited because I'm fairly new to it, but a lot of times you have to babysit these guys and the media dudes, you know, you gotta, well, we'll stage you here and you don't have to walk or any of this, but man, like that's my bread and butter. I love being in the woods, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, I'm not one of those media guys that you have to babysit and um, being able to um, handle my stuff is a, it was a huge capability. So whenever I got to talk to Scott and, and, uh, and kind of figure everything out um, he was like, dude, this is going to be awesome because I don't have to worry about like babysitting you and getting you through uh, any of this terrain, which you'll be able to just navigate it yourself. So, Mm -hmm. um, but it was really awesome, man, that experience getting up there, um, some of the best hosts, some of the best guys um, that I've ever met, um, which is super, super unique. So now when you guys did this, was this, was this a guided hunt or did these guys already know the lay of the land there in Colorado? Um, I didn't, I didn't know the lay of the land at all. I had never been in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, I had actually just met um, uh, one of the other guys that was working in the company at the time and he was brand new, but he had been in this area before. And I got to talking to him about it and was like, well, what's, what's it like? Is it like, you know, cause I got a lot of experience in Washington state. And he was like, uh, he was like, well, um, you know, it's going to be a lot like this super steep terrain. Um, there's a lot of predators in the area. And I was like, well, like, this isn't, this isn't quite what I was expecting, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, so I kind of just, 
was like, all right, well, we started talking about what we we're going to, our loadout and how we we're going to pack everything. And I was like, well, I guess this is kind of a sink or swim moment to capture this hunt, you know, on a video. The Tetra was the first site that we introduced the infinite adjust system on the front end. With previous sites, we had what we call a hopscotch or plug and play type of scope housing, where you had to bolt the scope housing to the frame to find the correct location. The Tetra changed that with the infinite adjust system. So now, when you sight in your 20 yard mark, you can really fine tune by sliding the whole scope housing up and down in this channel system. That's probably one of the biggest features to the Tetra. Another key feature of the Tetra is Ninja Star yardage wheel. Getting a better hold on the yardage wheel, especially when you're hunting and you have heavier gloves on. The Tetra does have 100 yard capabilities with the yardage tape and that's to the yard. A couple other key features of the Tetra is you get both third and second axis for even more precision. But one of the key features as far as looks goes is we've updated the front end or the housing of the Tetra. So now you have a brighter, larger uh, scope ring which helps with peep alignment as well as a built-in scope level which is just more secure. The Tetra is available in a fixed frame bracket with, with three different mounting locations as well as a dovetail or tournament edition uh, so you can adjust the distance that the scope housing is away from your bow and the Tetra is also available in three different scope housing sizes. You get an inch and five eighths, an inch and three quarter, as well as a new four pin multiple pin head. All the heads are interchangeable. All the Tetras are compatible with any of our accessories. For more information, you can visit our website at www.hhasports.com. So Austin, I have a question for you here. So we have survival and we were talking about that, about your elk trip here, but I want to get a little, a little more de detailed here. So it's like, let's start with like survival fantasy versus survival reality. Now I'm going to leave this broad because I want you to walk down different things and maybe you find a way to stick a point and, and then bridge the gap. Yeah, totally. That's actually a really good question. Um, so something I talk about a lot with, uh, with the courses that we teach is uh, probability versus possibility. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you should carry and train with the things that there's a probability of you needing, not just the possibility, because you get a lot of people that have this mentality of, well, isn't it possible that X could happen? Or isn't it possible that that could happen? Well, it's possible that aliens could come from outer space with lightsabers and destroy us all, right? But it's not very probable that that's going to happen. So mm -hmm. when I look at my equipment and I look at uh, in how I view survival, I, I prepare for what's the most probable. And that changes based off of environment. It changes based off of weather. It changes based off of who I'm with, what I'm doing. So um, looking at it through that kind of a lens, a lot of times, no matter what my activity is, allows me to better hone in what I plan to need or what I'm going to be doing. So mm -hmm. uh, maybe a good example is, um, well, you know, I'm going on a cross country trip where I'm going to be hunting in, you know, let's just say I'm going to be hunting in Montana and I'm in Utah right now. Well, I have to drive up there or fly up there. Well, let's just assume I'm driving because I'm going to be taking firearms. Um, well, yeah, you know, and you get a lot of guys like, well, I got my EDC, you know, and I, I carry appendix and I have 
200 rounds of nine mil because, you know, uh, self-defense. I'm like, well, that's great. And I think that you should absolutely carry in, in self-defense and, you know, for defense of your life. But mm-hmm. do you have a med kit in your car? Do you have a, you know, a tourniquet that's in your pocket? No. Well, I mean, the possibility of you needing to defend your life with a weapon is very low, but the probability of you witnessing a car mm-hmm. accident or being in a car accident are significantly higher. So instead of packing a bunch of lead, you should probably be packing a bunch of med. And, you know, it's, and I don't mean that as a derogatory sense of, you know, EDC and, and carrying defensive life, but I mean that in like, let's get our priorities straight. And have you ever taken, you know, you've taken 10 tactical courses on, um, on shooting pistol, but you've never taken a single med course, but the probability, where does it really lie? So looking at that in a survival sense, um, you know, like I said, breaking it down into my environment is usually my first consideration and looking at the things that I'm going to need. Which makes perfect sense. Cause it's like you, you, you can, you can use a, a good example too, is like you're looking at if you're driving from an hour or if you're driving six hours and what you're going to be, what you're going to change and what you're going to pack, and what you're not going to pack. Now mm-hmm. it also depends on the time of year as well. Now we, we live in all four seasons. So we have to, we have to cater to, we have to change as the seasons move forward. Now, if you're down South, the biggest thing is like, you're going to be worried about gas and water. Cause it's mm-hmm. like some places in Texas and Arizona, you can, you can go a good stretch of distance without coming across another, uh, another gas now the nice thing is we do have our technology to be able to plan for those things to happen out but it's like it's the unknown that we don't know about and i think what you did was a fantastic way of looking at it now um when you were since you this was one of your first times going out in wyoming and such like what were some of your perceived threats what were actually some very real threats so one of my perceived threats was uh definitely the weather uh, because I knew that uh, at the elevation, it was going to be significantly colder. Uh, and I, I live in Utah, just outside Salt Lake. And uh, it gets obviously pretty cold here. But uh, out there and at that elevation, I knew it was going to be a lot colder. And then I also was uh, definitely aware of the uh, much higher predator presence there. You know, there's a lot of grizzly bear. There's typically not any grizzly bears where I'm at. You know, there's not any wolves where I'm at. Um, so I don't really have to concern myself with predators here as much. But up there... Um, I think the statistics were somewhere around one in four big game kills were being taken by predators. Uh And so I was really concerned about that, you know, and I was like, man, like, you know, and and I had never hunted in an area uh, where there were predators of that number, you know? So uh, that was something that was definitely weighing on my mind. And I didn't really have a lot of knowledge base on, you know, preparing to, have an, an encounter with a predator like that. So mm-hmm. uh, I definitely, uh, luckily that the Eastman's guys had a lot of knowledge on it and they've, you know, they've been hunting that area their whole lives and were able to share a lot of knowledge with me on that. But um, those were the two big ones that I was really concerned with. And uh, in reality, once I was on the ground there, we did have, um, I never physically saw uh, any grizzly bears or any wolves, but there were uh, in one spot where, um, Mikey's or excuse me, uh, Guy Eastman and I walked up a trail. We were going to glass and we came across some really fresh, uh, grizzly prints and wolf prints within about 10 feet of each other, which was interesting. So, okay. Wow. So that's kind of an interesting thing to see, but then again, it's also very exciting as well. Now, uh, so we got into that. I want to move into like technology and stuff like that. So what are some ways, some of the ways you can buy your way into some margin of safety to limit or eliminate risk entirely? 
Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say that there's a lot of things and, you know, gosh, like 10 years ago when I really was hitting this kind of an industry hard into survival preparedness and things, especially on, on the medical side, but mm-hmm. th- there weren't as many options as there are now. And, you know, and I'm sure there's guys out listening and like, well, I've been doing this for 30 years and they can attest to that even more. And, uh, but now there's so many great options out there that can help you mitigate the risk. And a lot of those are things that you carry or you even have like on your phone. So things like mm-hmm. the Onyx hunt app, you know, something like that, where I can make waypoints and I can actually get real time uh, land navigation and, and look at those things from a satellite perspective and a topographic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. perspective. Um, like that's a huge capability. And uh, I definitely don't advocate for solely relying on technology. I think there's a lot of use still like I carry a map and compass everywhere I go and uh, or when I'm in the back country you know and mm-hmm. uh, but I think that having a capability of something like that on your phone uh, can help you significantly you know and and mm-hmm. things like a, a Garmin inReach or a Garmin spot you know I carry a Garmin spot with me what's a Garmin uh, spot so it works similar to the inReach uh, there's no user interface on the actual spot other than uh, two buttons that are on there and one is just a it's a beacon. It's essentially just an emergency beacon. If I need, and I can pre-program on the internet through its, through the website on Garmin, I uh, plug in my product number and the serial number mm-hmm. and it will attach and I purchase a service uh, either annually or monthly or however you want to set it up. And then I can have an, I have an SOS beacon that I can push, which will essentially send out uh, a signal to uh, SAR and it's an international mm-hmm. beacon and work anywhere you are in the world. And then it'll contact SAR in that area and ping all your information. And you've coordinated that online prior to going. So they know who you are, um, all the thing, you know, what you look like, what you're going to be doing. And you can update that every time you go out. And then you also have the option of a non SOS emergency where you can contact friends. um, And it gives you 10 contacts that you can send all that information to of whatever it is. And you can, and you just pre-plan that every time you go out. So I can go in, type out a message and be like, Hey Jeff, like I'm heading out to such and such trailhead. I'm in my truck. I'm going to have my black Kilty backpack. I'm wearing my red and black flannel uh, mm-hmm. going out on elk hunt, probably going to be around this area for the next three days. And if you get that ping, then you know, and you can, you can say, Oh, I know Austin's in a spot. Uh, he probably needs like, needs some help. So I'm going to go out and help him. I got you. No, no, these are, these are some of the tools you brought with you. Like you, somebody yeah. had some form mm-hmm. of that type of uh, tool to use. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. You know, because I'm, I'm lucky for being here in the Midwest. We, just, we, we like, we don't have a lot of public land to walk on, but mm-hmm. some here in like in the bluff country here, it is nice to some areas that we have enough service. So it's like, it's, I can easily shut off my, uh, uh, what is it? Shut off my, like my data plant, my data oh, option, yeah. but I can always, I can still be able to pull up a, a, a uh, longitude and lat- latitude and when i went hunting out this past november i went out by myself and i did I, I did this massive climb and stuff like that but it's like it was very steep and it's like i was wanted to make sure that i, I was going to be able to get in contact with my wife so it's like i sent her one spot where i knew it was going to be at, at least it would cover a very vast area so if i happened to roll roll or hit my head or something like that because it's very steep and there's some of those places would uh, uh shell rock and such so if mm-hmm. i don't think bad happens like at least she had a point of reference this way then then they can bring out the the uh, the search and rescue to be able to locate myself so i think that's those are all viable things to be able to pull that stuff off there now 
getting into that that gear mentality, what are some easy purchases would you would go into your kit? Like when you went out on the like, so when you went out, did you create a kit for your hunt? I did. So I used, um, I, I basically lined it out kind of based off the possibility probability that we kind of talked about. And then I mm-hmm. said, based off of the environment I'm going to be in, I know I'm going to need a lot of cold weather gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that I'm going to need med gear and I know that I'm going to need survival gear. And this is just looking at it through the lens of, um, kind of my go to hell bag. Like if everything else fails and I, in the worst case scenario, mm-hmm. Uh, because that's what I, I like to plan for. Maybe it's a little bit uh, overkill sometimes, but I would rather err on that side than err than need it and not have it. So um, I did, and and luckily at, at Fieldcraft Survival, we have developed some really cool med kits. Um, and so I would just pack out one of those med kits because I know, you know, we sat down the guys at the company, we we figured out what we wanted in these kits. So mm-hmm. I knew comfortably I could grab that kit, what was in it, and then could put that away from a med consideration. And then we also have survival kits. And I, I use that as my template for my survival kit. And then we'll build upon that kit, depending on what environment I'm going into. So uh, especially in a cold weather environment, I know that I need, you know, to protect myself from the cold, from the elements, because that's, you know, the number one killer in those environments. And I needed a way to increase that by getting myself warmer. So I needed a way to build fire. Uh, and looked at it from that perspective. And then obviously I had uh, my equipment for land navigation. So that way I could uh, have maps of the area mm-hmm. and have GPS and coordinates and all that type of stuff. So when you guys were out there, you said you, you focus, you, you focus was on cold. And when you're, what were some of the things that you, what were some of the, the ways to obtain your, to, to, to increase your, your warmth? What were some of the, what were some of the kits, some of the, uh, items in your kit so this way then some people can kind of get a, get a glimpse of that because you're like why don't you paint us a picture of like what were the temperatures at night and then what 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 purchases what do we be you would that you advise to go into it because granted i know you you built the kit and some of the, you built use the template of sir fieldcraft survival but were some things that that some people that's like uh, that list to it that live over in russia they don't or someplace overseas that may not have access to yeah field survival well, kits um, so, so one of the first things that I kind of looked at was um, the, and what I would say is bigger than just equipment that I carried was I had to think about my layering system and how I was going to wear my clothes, which is probably the biggest thing when you think about personal protection and keeping mm-hmm. yourself at 98.6. And that's just one for being comfortable, but also looking at the survival preparedness consideration. But uh, we were sitting around, I mean, I, I think it got above freezing the last day we were there. Okay. After five days, but on average, we sat around in the teens, low twenties for the highs, and then we were dropping down into the single digits and down into the like negative three and negative four degree range at night. Okay. Um, so definitely cold, definitely cold enough to sustain some significant cold injuries um, if you're not prepared for it. So uh, we were lucky enough to like you know Eastman's has a deal with Sitka, and they were able to to help us out with. Um, with some gear that we just didn't have already um, that was all camouflaged out. But layering appropriately is huge. Like mm-hmm. learning to put a base layer on, that's going to be a moisture wicking material uh, preferably. And then uh, being able to pull that moisture uh, away from your body and keeping your body dry. And then after that, having, having some sort of an insulating layer, uh, whether that's down or a synthetic down or some type of mm-hmm. other synthetic mm-hmm. material, 
to where you can create what I call like dead airspace. <clears throat> so it's just like when you cover up with a blanket, uh, the blanket doesn't keep you warm. The blanket just traps your body heat and allows it to keep your body warm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I want those insulating layers to do the same thing. So then yeah. you just have those insulating layers the same and until you have enough and it sustains your warmth. And you can put a shell layer over top of that, something that's going to really um, uh, wick away the moisture and mm-hmm. keep you dry. So. I got you. So what was the, what was the, the what was the, the most vile, like, uh, uh, let's see, I'll use like your example for your hands. Like what were something that was your go-to to keep your hands nice and warm? Did you practice something electronic or did you get some hot hands? What I did, did you do? Yeah. The hot hands, uh, I would take in the mornings, I would put, uh, one in the toes of each of my boots. Mm-hmm. And then I would put, I would break about three of them and put, uh, one in each pocket. And then I actually put one because of my, all my camera equipment, I would take all my spare batteries that I thought I was going to need for the day, yeah. put them on my, uh, innermost jacket layer. Uh-huh. And then you know, I put a hot hands in there with those batteries as well, because the batteries will get cold soaked. Um, you know, and then they lose all their juice. Uh, yeah. So I would put one in there as well. And then uh, my hands, I just had, uh, I had like a moisture wicking type of glove, you know, just like a thinner, uh, like nylon type glove or mm-hmm. synthetic material. And then I would put uh, like mittens over top of that. And and that kept me like toasty. And then I, in my pack, I carried a couple of extra um hot hands just in case you know because if it got really bad i could put them in my you know in my armpits and my groin around my neck and other mm-hmm. places to really mm-hmm. yeah especially where some of the circulates the air and the the blood through your body yeah i think a hot hands since they're they're cheap they're inexperienced or they're excuse mm-hmm. me they're cheap they're lightweight and they're just, they're viable viable to ha- viable to have and so it's like i think that's a fantastic thing because it's like i use hot hands all over the place because when it because like i um I'm going to go, well, I applied for half Friday off because this weekend is the last hunting weekend for for, mm. for whitetail for where I'm yeah. at. So it's like, I want to see if I can, I can close a deal on something here. So uh, I know I want, so I, that's one of the things I buy is like, I get the big patch ones where they have the silicone. I just stick those on, on the, like right around the knees and right on, yeah. right on my butt and stuff like that. So it's like, it's, it's just like, cause you're going to be setting, oh, yeah. you, you don't get, you don't have a lot of room to walk. So it's like, you gotta, and you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, I want to be comfortable and like hot hands is the best way to go. And nice thing is too, it's like, I, they, they last for four, four years and then you rotate them out for something new. So I think that's probably, so it sounds like that was the most influential thing you needed for your trip. Yeah. Oh dude, it was, uh, it, it's definitely the game changer because you, you find yourself getting it in the first day I went out. I didn't, I didn't use them. You know, I took, I had some of my pack. And then I got out there and you're standing in the cold. Like you said, you're sitting down on your butt and, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're glassing, you're sitting still and you're just waiting and watching. And my toes started getting pretty chilly and then my fingertips started getting chilly. And then, um, and then they just get that numb achy the rest of the day. And I was like, oof, like that's, I'm not trying to do that for the next week. So let me go ahead and break a couple, put them on my toes, put mm-hmm. them in my boots and then put a couple of my pockets. And then if my hands get really cold, I can just dunk them into my pockets and warm them back up. Oh, ain't that the truth, man? Because that's the biggest thing. It's like if you can maintain your your hand, your toes being warm, mm-hmm. then then your trip is going to be far more enjoyable. Because everything else, you can get up, walk around, and and mm-hmm. stretch, do some jumpy jacks, get the blood flowing. But once the feet go, man, it, it just it just goes downhill. Because then you become yeah. miserable mm-hmm. and kind of uncomfortable, and it's like it, it's just it just becomes a sucky trip. So yeah, at least I think. Right. 
at least that's at least something that we can we all agree upon on that. So now, what are some of the essentials that you you, you routinely use? that the listeners may not find obvious because not only do you hunt, but you also do uh, rescue too. And you do, you said you fought, we primarily focus on mountain expertise, exploration mm-hmm. or expert, or excuse me, mountain rescues. So what are some mm-hmm. things that you, that you find essential or let's see what are essentials that you, you, you routinely use, excuse me. Yeah. Um, that's a tough one. Um, but what I would say is, you know, not undervaluing, uh, the importance of your base layers, because that's a big one is, is a mm-hmm. lot of people can overlook that. Um, but putting money into those things too, like get good materials from a trusted brand yeah. and uh, socks is another big one. You know, I, I actually have invested in a lot of wool clothing, yes. um, which has helped me a ton because wool will retain um, almost all of its warming properties and heating properties, even though it can be soaking wet. Yes. So uh, it's super great to have, especially in mountainous, cold, wet environments. Mm-hmm. So that is, is massive. And I mean, even wool socks, you know, you can get different weighted wool socks. You can get like a, a thin weight, a medium weight and a heavy weight. And uh, I usually like a, a medium weight wool sock. And, uh, you know, even if my feet were to sweat a little bit, I don't lose any warmth through that because it just retains that moisture and keeps me warm, keeps my toes warm. And in turn keeps my body temperature a little bit higher. Oh, hundred percent, man. I can't, can't argue with that. Cause I do the same thing too. It's like, I'm, I'm lucky my, uh, my wife's uh, grandpa hunts. And so he, when he, when he asked me what I wanted, it's like, well, it's like, you know, my size is nine millimeter, 30 out six and 22, you know, but he went and it's like, he went someone a little dirty, deeper. It's like, he got socks that he uses. Mm-hmm. And so that's, so that's what he got me for. He got me the, uh, several good pairs that last me throughout the years. And it's like, the nice thing is like some socks, you can get a lifetime warranty on. So it's crazy about how that works. But uh, one. And, and, and actually I would, I would say one other thing I just, I just thought of is, because we, we had a call out uh, a couple of days ago and a lot of times in these environments we're riding snow machines or in a, in some type of a track vehicle. Yeah. Um, and one of the things is you can actually have a lot of difficulty finding someone, even though you're close. So, you know, you'll get a call back from 911 that says, Hey, you know, they're hearing your snow machines. Um, they said they're flashing lights in that direction. Can you see anything? And we can't see a thing because there's so much dense, you know, uh, trees and, and, and everything like that. But having something that's loud, like a whistle mm-hmm. uh, and that or and or a strobe light of some type is I mean, it can go a really long way in facilitating your rescue too. just just something that people may not think about as well. Yeah, it makes perfect sense because there's a I went hunting here a few uh, back in November, and I was coming out of the woods there. I was waiting for somebody to come pick me up, but I was walking through the woods. So it was like as I'm coming up, and so this way they don't drive past me. I turn my my headlamp on and had it flashing, so this way I could see it. And like I see the car, and it stopped right in front of me. So it's like because it works. It's like you're you're 100 right, and it's like I use it needed in a rescue situation, but it's like I need just for simple communication. And so that's I think that's pretty pretty sweet. Now. Uh, what oh i wanted to get into like you said spending money on good base layers now mm-hmm. a couple of years ago my wife got me heater it's a company based out of maple grove in minnesota now the reason what sold me on is that these guys their entire team are there playing uh, touch football and just 
base layers. That's it. Wow. Now, when it, when you look at the roster, who all uses it, they put all the, the sports stars that use them, but it's a lot of people in the skiing world, world that use them, uh, people that work for the NFL and everything. And, uh, and then, of course, goes into to, um, rescue and stuff. But it, what it, it's just their, their technology they have into it. Now, the pieces are not cheap. Like a full adult yeah. male size, it's going gonna, it's gonna to run you about four, like 400 bucks or so, plus mm-hmm. or minus. But the cool thing is if you catch it right at their sales, like uh, she picked up an entire set for just under 200 bucks for oh, top wow. and the bottom. And the way it works is that it, they have sleeves that go around your thumbs and mm-hmm. then also has a hat too and skin oh, tight. Man. And so it's yeah. like, it's, it's, sir, it's like, mm-hmm. it keeps her out there longer in the later seasons, as long as I can keep her toes warm. But for me, it's like, I just love it. Cause then it's like, I don't need to put as many other layers on top of it. So it's like now mm-hmm. good, like I have a heavier down jacket. So it's like, okay, it works out perfectly for me. So it's like, I'm not having to worry about um, getting cold to that. But then again, I, I utilize the hot hands. So that's works for, mm-hmm. for the yeah. whitetail hunter for you. It's like you, you have those multiple layer systems because you need to, you need to be able to take something off, put something on based off what you're in them doing. So check out uh, it's WSI sports.com, not sponsored by them, but I love their gear. Yeah, and right, well, and it's like, because they make socks, they make gloves, they make headwear, and it's just, and they, they make some really cute um, yoga stuff too. But it's like it's all round, <laughs> keeping yeah. everybody. It's American made, so it's nothing, nothing oh, gets, awesome. nothing gets imported from overseas. So it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. Now I want to get into your kit. So what are some of the pieces of gear that you carry in it? Okay, so. In my, and I'll just start with med kit. In my med kit, I carry um, at least two tourniquets. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like to carry two. And if I know I'm going to be with more people, um, I just assume that other people don't have the stuff. Um, but I'll try to carry a little bit more, just depending on size and weight that I, I have available. But uh, at least two, because, you know, the old adage in the military is two is one and one is none. So uh, <laughs> I like to have at least two tourniquets on me. Um, to stop any type of massive hemorrhage. Uh, and then I'll carry usually two, sometimes more, depending on how many people I'm with. Um, I'll carry a few hemostatic gauze. And all that is is hemostatic agent that's uh, kind of infused and embedded in the gauze. And just a fancy word for uh, promoting the coagulation process, which coagulation is just stopping the bleed and, and creating mm-hmm. essentially like a clot. Um so I'll carry a little bit of that and then I'll carry some normal um, uninfused, just normal wound packing gauze. I'll carry one or two of those. And I like one of the other items I really like in there is, is, is a couple of Sam splints. And um, if you're not familiar with the Sam splint, they're just like a, it's a thin piece of aluminum that's a, a inside a piece of foam. And they're really thin, really lightweight. They open up to about three feet wide uh, and then about, uh, or excuse me, about three feet long and about five inches wide. And they fold up into a nice little Z pattern that takes up no room, mm-hmm. but it's great for splinting, you know, long bone fractures or even just uh, to wrap around the twisted ankle and things like that. Cause unfortunately our joints is one of those things that we can't strengthen very much. You can strengthen those stabilizer muscles around them, but mm-hmm. can't strengthen the joint itself. And very that's true. probably our weakest point when we're out there as outdoorsmen carrying a pack or, uh, packing out an animal or whatever it is, you know, your, your knees, ankles, and elbows are, um, can be kind of weak points. So having something like that, that can help me, um, splint those areas to where if I need to move and get out, I can at least, uh, stabilize that injury and then help me facilitate my movement out. So that's some of the stuff I look at for med as well as like a, some type of an emergency mylar blanket. 
mm-hmm. uh, sort of collective that that I can use in an emergency or to wrap myself or someone else up and and keep their body temperature up because it's something that's underestimated with any type of traumatic injury um, where there's blood loss because blood is what keeps our body at 98.6. So when you lose a lot of blood, you can actually suffer from what's called secondary hypothermia, which is uh, basically where the body can't maintain its own temperature due to the trauma. So you have to really focus on keeping a trauma patient warm. Um, So that's another reason to carry one. And then into my survival kit, um, kind of like I was saying earlier, I, I, I try to think about all the needs I'm going to have, and they're typically going to be environmental and weather dependent and weather specific. But for this hunt, I carried a ferro rod with a striker. So, excuse me, if I didn't have, if my lighter wasn't working, which I also had in there, mm-hmm. I had another source of being able to create a spark to get a flame. And then I carried uh, another, what's called like a survival wrap, which is made by uh, North American rescue that are in, in some of our med kits. It's just a thicker, um, a little bit bigger mylar space blanket, okay. um, just a thicker material. And I can actually make an emergency shelter out of that, uh, if need be. <clears throat> and then I'll carry about six and a half, seven feet of paracord in there. It's just one string that I can use and, uh, and tie up my shelter piece with just that little bit. Yeah. Uh, and then I do carry, like I said, a lighter in there and usually around my lighter, I'll have about 10 to 15 feet of duct tape. I just like to, to wrap around it just so it's not, not that it's, uh, length for any specific reason, but it's more so I can comfortably get that around the lighter without making it super fat mm-hmm. and kind of awkward to carry. Um, but that duct tape, obviously, you know, the saying, if you can't duck it, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get so, it. Yeah, <laughs> um, I get it. We all get it. Yeah. So, um, but there's a, a ton of uses for it. So the adhesive on there um, is actually a little bit flammable and it'll, it'll take a flame and hold a flame for a little bit, but also um, I can use, it can be a dual purpose for if I didn't just splint something or hold something up, I can obviously use the duct tape for that. Um, and then also I have a compass in there mm-hmm. um, and just, and I don't put like a really expensive compass in there. Um, my preferred is a, a Sunto MC2. It just has a lot of, bells and whistles on it. It's an expensive compass, but, uh, for the way that I, I land navigate and, and teach land navigation, it's just like the best one that I've, I've found, but I'll have like a cheaper $10, like, uh, I don't even know what brand it is to be honest with you, a compass that I have in there. It's a little bit smaller, mm-hmm. but all I need it for is so I can find an emergency asthma. So, um, what that is, is before I go out anywhere, um, you know, I'll look at a map of the area I'm going to. And if I know, especially if I'm hunting, I can look it up. Uh, one to 25,000s map or 24,000s or one to 50,000s, even if I'm trying to get a little bit bigger area and look at it. And then I can find a road or a river that connects to a road or a very definitive area that I need, that I can get to that will facilitate me being safe or getting to safety. Mm-hmm. And I'll create an azimuth off of that. So I'll find whatever degree it is on the compass, you know, I'll orient my compass to true north. And then, um, and then I'll say, okay, well, that river is off at, you know, I don't know, 27 degrees. And then I know anywhere that I'm in that area, um, I can pull out that compass, shoot to 27 degrees and walk that azimuth. And I'll eventually walk into whatever that point is. And it's a river, or if it's a road or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and that to me is just uh, kind of a standard thing. So I always keep that uh, compass in there as well. Uh, and then I'll carry... I like to have a little spool of just maybe 10 feet of like chicken wire so I can make a snare if I really needed to, if I was really in a bad spot. 
Um, and then I want to say there's one other thing in there that I'm missing. Oh, I have a whistle in there as well. Like what I was just talking about earlier, I have a, one of those, um, I can't even remember what it's called, but it's, uh, it, it's one of those hardcore whistles that you can even blow underwater. But, you know, it's super loud. Wow. It's, it's crazy. Wow. Um, that, and then, oh, and a headlamp. Uh, I always think that having a light source is important. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'll have the headlamp that has a strobe uh, function, as a red light function, um, you know, and it, it's bright enough to do what I need and it's got a battery pack on it. Um, and then that's something else I'll put in, in, it doesn't fit specifically in my survival kit, but it always goes in my kit is uh, spare batteries for all the stuff that I run, rather headlamp, GPS uh, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it makes 100% because that's what I would, I would, because I, I always carry every back, every pack I own. My, uh, my father in law last Christmas gave me a three pack of the exact same style of a headlamp and it works mm-hmm. out great. So it's like every one of them. So this way I got one, my wife has one, and my, my spare backpack has one. So this way they're all of them are always covered with them. And then every year I always replace the batteries because. You know, it's like you, you just you always want to be prepared. So this way, if, if they're fresh, I'm going to be good to go with it. Now, uh, since you weren't actually doing the hunting, so did you carry a, a sidearm then, just for an ever, another level of protection? Yeah, I just carried a, a 357 Magnum, um, and it was it's actually belongs to Kevin Owens. It's a sweet little wheel gun, uh, but he had a an awesome chest harness holster for it as well, um, which was really cool. So uh, it just <laughs> you know, they say the bear spray is really bad for the bear's indigestion system after it eats you. So I just liked having that, uh, that spare <laughs> little bit of a uh, warm and fuzzy having a gun on my chest. Yeah. You know, I've heard a lot of, of I've, I've read enough information. Like the 357 is actually the, quite the, the versatile firearm to use. It's like, I was just quite, I was wondering, cause it's like, I've seen some of the ballistics tests between a, a 357 SIG and a 357 Magnum, but it's like, then again, when you look at them, they are a little bit different, but the, mm-hmm. the, the 357, sig fl- shoots a lot flatter but then again it's like you want that power you want that punching power because like yeah. even though i my biggest is a nine millimeter but it's like my i have a i have a, a 21 round magazine and it's all full hollow points <laughs> so if i run into a situation it's like i want penetration i want it to go straight through them and they're uh, 147 grain so it's like they're gonna they're gonna do some do as, do as much damage as i possibly can yeah absolutely and and one of the big things with bears um they they actually uh, we're telling you to use uh, more of a FMJ style. So like something that's a solid ball to yes. where it's going to punch through the skull of the bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that penetration is really like your best bet at getting the true stopping power. Um, and I, I've never had a run in with a bear, like I said, but um, you know, the guys were telling me a few stories, uh, horror stories, in my opinion, of being charged by bears and, and having, uh, you know, I don't even know the the other term of it, but balls of bluff steel. charge. Yeah, because yeah. because they'll do they'll do a bluff charge depending on what's going on. But then again, if it's a female, then it's a whole another ball game because that bluff charge that may go straight into a full on charge. Because yeah, like, exactly. I've heard stories with uh, uh, Steve Rinella and his situation because he got in, in a bear entanglement in twenty nineteen, and it's mm-hmm. just like you never know what to expect. And it's like uh, it was inches away from Giannis Patelis and I uh, can't remember one of no, I think it was Giannis that he had managed to take something and club it. And it's like, wow. it, and it just sent it off and went off to a completely different direction. But it's one of those things that you, you, you can live those, you can 
live through those fantasies in your mind about like what you do in the bear attack, but uh, you don't know what's going to happen because not every, nobody was paying attention because like it just it just kind of like randomly just like hey here I am and just comes yeah. charging right on in, and so it's like whether you have a, a firearm or if you have a uh, like in that situation where the honest with us like if even even if you had a firearm you're going to end up doing you're going to hurt somebody else. Yeah, yeah, especially whenever I th- and I think I've heard that story. Um, and because everybody kind of just scattered, you know, there, it's not like you can really just plan out what's going to happen whenever a bear charges out of nowhere, you know, and you never know what position you're going to be in and all that kind of stuff. So if everybody just scatters and then you just, you have no idea where anybody is and you start shooting, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you definitely, definitely hurt somebody. That's exactly right on that. So now I want to get into the multi-tool because that is my, like I have a multi-tool in the car, my truck, Mm -hmm. I carry one on me. It's like, what is your go-to? I actually have, uh, what's funny is I have a Gerber multi-tool and I got issued that Gerber multi-tool probably six years ago okay. at the survival school for the Air Force. And uh, I've been carrying it ever since. And I, I've never even done any homework into what uh, steel it's made out of or anything. And I, you know, I'm one of those knife nerds that looks into the steels and all those kinds of things, but I never have with this thing. And it's just always served me really, really well. Um, I've carried that one for the longest time. And then another one that I've had in my pack, um, at another time was, uh, the Leatherman wave. Yeah. Um, that's and, the one I like you, Steve Renella said he likes, and I, mm-hmm. I've been looking at that one too myself and it's, it's a little spendy, but then again, when you're buying it though, it's like you're buying quality because that stuff is field tested right there in Oregon. And you know what? I actually picked mine up at a, um, at a pawn shop, go to a pawn shop, <laughs> look at a secondhand nice. store. Uh, I got it for like, I think I paid 20 bucks for it, you know, even though it comes in like 150 bucks, some of like that too, plus yeah, my yeah. sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, they're, they're just a fantastic thing. It's like, for me, I like having a saw, a knife, of course, the needle nose. Cause it's like, you never know when those things are come out. Mm-hmm. And then today it's like, I, I was watching a video where this guy was like, if you're, let's say you're in a wet scenario, you need to, you need to start a fire. Well, he went over to pine trees and he found a piece of like dead stump. And mm-hmm. all he did is he, he, he cut it off the tree and it was all dead through it, but it was all full of that sap and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he cut about two inches into that, in that, in that uh, stick and it produced about a, a silver dollar size worth of dust. Mm-hmm. And you just take a lighter to it and it just starts right up on fire. Yeah, and you yeah, can take that pitch. bag. Yeah. Yeah. They call, to- that, um, they call that pitch wood and it's the sap that is inside the branches. So you'll find it kind of, pools at the base of branches and then at the base of the tree when a tree is dead but it's still mm-hmm. stable yeah. and then you can, yeah and they call it fat wood is another name for it and but it works really really good now i want to get into water now what are your recommendations on obtaining and purifying water if you on your if you if you guys didn't have water already pre-planned for your hunt mm-hmm. stuff like that what would you have done if you would have ran out of water in wyoming yeah, so that's a that's another really good question. Um, so the first thing I would say is you have to understand the difference between water treatment and water purification, mm-hmm. and that there's a difference. So water treatment is something that is, uh, you know, like think of iodine tablets. Um, I take iodine tablets, I drop two in per liter, I wait 30 minutes and let it and let it do its thing. And the reason that you have to do that, the reason you wait in iodine is a treatment versus purification is because what iodine actually does is it encapsulates any bacteria and protozoa that can be in that water, allows you to drink the water and allow all that bacteria to pass through your system without affecting you. Versus water purification 
And by the way, iodine and, and water treatments are typically 97 to 98% effective, which here in North America, the United States, we don't have too many crazy um, bacteria or protozoa or anything that's in our waters. Uh, so it'll treat most things uh, there. You'd be, it'd be difficult to find a lot of things that it won't treat here in the United States, but if you're mm-hmm. in other countries, uh, you might look into just purifying First, what purifying is means that I'm killing all of the bacteria in the water. And mm-hmm. that is done by boiling your water. And typically at sea level, that means I'm going to boil my water for a minute of a rolling boil, which just means, you know, all the bubbles where it's being aerated at the top of the water. So a straight one minute minimum of boiling, rolling boil uh, for the water. But now the difference in Wyoming is at once you're at elevation and above nine, 10,000 feet, you need to look at actually, you're gonna have to boil your water longer. So I would say at a minimum of three minutes. And the reason is, is because at elevation, water temperature or the water will boil at a lower temperature. So mm-hmm. uh, you're not as apt to kill things and all the bacteria if you only do it for a minute because the temperature is quite a bit lower. So if you're above, you know, eight to 8,000 feet, 9,000 feet, um, you're going to want to go ahead and boil it for three minutes instead of just the one minute. So that's the differences between water treatment and water purification and having a good understanding of that uh, is really important. Uh, and obviously there's a ton of places in the United States where you could, you could probably just drink right out of the river and you'd be fine. Um, however, I don't, I try to steer away from that because you never know what may have crawled in the river up river and died or pooped in the water or peed in the water or whatever. So, uh, but if you are going to collect water, you want to find, if you can, a moving water source, like a river where you can see a little bit of the white caps where the water is being aerated and it has a much lower chance of there being any type of bacteria in it, um, where you can get that water, um, and I'll actually plan water into my trip if I'm going to be out and about. So I, you can only pack so much water, right, on your back. Yes, because it gets real um, heavy real fast. I've done some heavy. hitchhiking, and it takes up a lot of space, and it's real heavy real fast. Yep. And and so typically, for me, I'll pack enough water for the day and maybe a little extra. I don't like to carry, you know, 40 pounds of water on my back if I can help it. Um, you know, so usually I'll have just a canteen and maybe a little bit more in my bag and a small um, like one liter dromedary bag or something like that. Mm-hmm. Where I'm not carrying an excessive amount of weight, but what I will do is I always carry um, the ability to start fire so I can boil water uh, because if I don't have to treat water with iodine, then I'm not going to, because one, it just tastes bad. <laughs> and two, I'd rather go ahead and kill everything that's in there with a the boiling water than trying to just treat it. Um, so what I'll do is I'll always try to carry um, some type of a, either a canteen cup that's, um, you know, aluminum, or I'll carry some type of a metal canteen itself that I can actually boil the water in should I need to. Yeah, it's a little bit more weight, but it's absolutely worth the weight to have that capability. So when I go out, if I'm going to be in a certain area, I'll look at my map and I'll look at my GPS and I'll try to stay within about a thousand meters at a minimum, or I guess I should say at a maximum away from water. Um, I don't like to put myself in a vulnerable situation where I can be really far away. If I can help it, I'd like to stay within 500 meters. And a lot of that will be determined by the terrain uh, because, you know, out in Wyoming, there's a, you know, the terrain's pretty steep, especially in the mm-hmm. area. Um, but luckily it was the winter. So I wouldn't have had to travel far to find water. 
Um, and there was just a lot of snow on the ground, which I can use to boil. Uh, I can use and boil it down and, and get water out of it. But um, you do need to be cautious of just one grabbing snow and eating it because you can still get, find the bacteria in that. And two, when you're actually um, eating or drinking. So if you eat cold snow or drink really cold water, uh, it forces your body to burn a lot more calories to get it up to a temperature that's warmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you can warm the water up to at least a, you know, a body temperature warmth, dual purpose, you don't burn as many calories and two, you um, aren't going to get as cold and it'll help warm you up. That's actually pretty smart. Cause yeah. Cause it's like, I don't want to, when I go out hunting in the morning, so I usually pack some warm coffee. Because I'll, I'll put it in a thermostat and say, I'll, I'll put it in a nice thermos and then I'll let it just, I won't drink it for the first couple of because I want to keep my bladder limited during mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. prime time. And then they're walking, when they're, when they start waking up out of, out of the bedding areas, start walking up. And then usually like, that's like about nine o'clock or so, maybe I'll have a couple of sips or all depending on the area. Cause there's mm-hmm. some place where I've hunted, I don't see any movement until almost nine thirty ten. 10. So it's like, I don't want to have a lot of water in my bladder. So I've, yeah. uh, I, I, I like a company called Cowboy Coffee Chew they're based here in wisconsin yep. they're, out, they're out of sparta and it's just simply just put a little dip in your mouth and you just suck on it and it's perfect mm-hmm. you can just spit it out or you can ingest it doesn't matter because he he tried to focus on using all um organic materials so this way oh, there's cool. not any not any um uh different sodiums or any 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 chemicals in it that you that they use to f- make for soda and stuff like that and the mm-hmm. aspartame is that we want to keep everything like it's like really simple so this way when you look at the ingredients it's like it's got five ingredients that's it so it's, a, awesome. it's just, it's a fantastic pl- uh, plan that you make. It. So that's what I liked about it. Uh, so now how, how would you suggest people to think about that? Hello, we're at the 2020 ATA show at a uh, veteran innovative products, uh, an all American made and manufactured broadhead. So we've got a new one for 2020 called the Combat Veteran Four Blade. As you can see, Four Blades got a lot of the same high quality materials we used with our original Two Blade Veteran, but the Combat Veteran has a different deployment system. How it deploys is you just squeeze a little bit on your main blades, okay? Those compress and then the broadhead opens. It still has our momentum management compressible blade technology. So the cutting diameter is inch and a quarter by two inches on this when deployed Uh, in flight. It's one inch by inch and a quarter. Another feature we added this year with these heads uh, is that you can exchange the bone breaching field point tip with a 125 grain setup if you would like. So swap the tip out and get you 125 grains instead of 100, which is big with those Western hunters. And then it's really simple to lock back in place, roll those blades up, and then it's a click and another click on the other side. It's completely set in will not prematurely deploy, will not rattle free, solid containment, 100% deployment every time. So we've made a lot of good adjustments and refinements to it to make sure that it's guaranteed to deploy every single time. So that's what's new for VIP this year. As far as water, I would say, man, that's kind of tough. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's like a, that's a deep question. So, Maybe, maybe refine it for me a little bit. How in the sense of like just preparedness and everything in general? 
thinking so, but I think who I, I, I it's like maybe it's the question because you you did a really good job of answering the water question. So it's like maybe it could I could we can skip that question because it's like I think it's like it, it's a little bit deeper because it's like you you primarily f- have focused your energy here in North America. So it's like it's not mm-hmm. like you have South America underneath your belt or Africa or Australia underneath your belt yet, you know, because you yeah. know what's going to happen. So well, well, one thing I will say is you just have you do have to remember. Um, how much water you need as an adult, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, it's usually a lot more than what you think. And, um, and I believe it's five to seven liters. So you need to think about your body weight. You need to think about how much you're going to be moving and all that type of stuff. So mm-hmm. um, figure that out before and stay hydrated. That's something that you need to stay ahead of the curve. And um, mm-hmm. a lot of people are in a good rule to look up and you can Google later is a uh, the rule of thirds where they talk about, you can go, your brain can go three minutes without, um, or the rule of threes, not the rule of thirds. Uh, sorry, I confused my photography stuff. Um, the rule of threes is the brain can go about three minutes without being oxygenated. You Mm -hmm. can uh, basically go about three hours in some type of, uh, uh, before you need to really consider the weather consideration. So you can go Mm -hmm. three hours in really cold environment or three hours in really hot environment before that consideration is going to catch up to you. And then you can go about three days without water and about three weeks without food. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's all relative because if I'm dehydrated when I started my hunt uh, and then maybe I only have two days in me before I'm going to really get the effects of dehydrate or dehydration will hit you way sooner, but before it can actually be a catastrophic um, failure mm-hmm. of the system mm-hmm. um, could happen sooner than that. So you need to make sure you're hydrated when you hit the trail, not just hide, not, not just drinking a little bit of water. Um, so definitely like if you know, you're going to be packing in, you know, the next day you need to be drinking and, and over hydrating almost the day before. So this way kind of get over, uh, over hydrates the muscles and such, which is actually quite, quite uh, uh, smart to think about. Now, when you're preparing, cause like on your deal, on your day to day, cause you were in the back country, what, five days or seven days? Five days total. Uh, we were there seven days, but we went out for five days. Okay. So then each day, then like how many miles are you putting on and uh, on average? Um, on average, probably two to three, um, maybe a okay. little less just because some days we didn't have to go very far for glassing. Um, but the days that we did go out and like, uh, because there were some mornings where we didn't um, and we spotted, we hunted in a few different spots and some of them were uh, really far walk in, you know, five, six miles in. And there were some days where we only had to walk, you know, a mile or two in, but, uh, we definitely, definitely put in the miles that week. So, um, I, and it, it's hard even, even for me knowing, you know, like I'm not exempt to the same things as anyone else, just because, you know, I have the knowledge, but, um, you know, it's hard in a cold environment to want to drink water. Uh, but you got to do it. So I I tried to always have a plan for hydrating and and saying, okay, I'm going to drink, I'm going to finish this right now while I know I'm on the way back to camp. And then I'm going to drink more when I get back to camp. I gotcha. Now on your longest day for like your complete round trip that you may have walked, how did you calculate the amount of liters you need to carry with you on your way out on your way back to base camp? Yes. The big thing, the big thing for me was, Actually, um, uh, I try to do the math ahead of time. And then I try to always, like I said, um, drink water um, before I ever went out. So the night before, I'm trying to hydrate. While we're sitting by the fire, I'm trying to hydrate. And nobody wants to do it uh, because nobody want, wants to get up and pee in the middle of the night. Um, and 
which does, which does suck, but um, you know, you're actually going to end up being a little side note. You're going to actually end up being warmer if you just go ahead and pee um, because uh, the bladder, as it holds that water, your body has to work harder to warm up all that liquid. So if you just mm-hmm. pee, your body's going to actually stay a, a lot warmer. So, um, but yeah, so I, I would just say that, um, you know, you need at, just to sit around, you're going to need about four liters a day uh, just to survive. Right. And, and you have to kind of look at it from that perspective, but then when you burn, um, a bunch of calories and you're working that much harder, you're going to need somewhere between five and seven, uh, which is what I would typically, you know, I have, I have a one liter, uh, one liter platypus bladder that I carry. And that's just what I was just drinking. Okay. Uh, so. That, that is a uh, makes sense then. So when you guys, when you guys were out there, what did you guys do for food? Now, do you, did you guys bring in dry, uh, uh, freeze dried food or did you guys just, kill whatever you saw that you could eat like because i know you can you can get uh small game tags to, small game license to, to do that. what did you guys do for food for those those days out there yeah i was really tempted to uh to kill some of the smaller game but um we actually just had a lot of mountain house meals and um mountain houses are great and in those type of dehydrated meals are, are really good for those types of scenarios because they're really light. They don't take a whole up a whole lot of room and you get a ton of calories. They're super calorie dense and you get a lot of the nutrients that you're going to need to be able to move um, efficiently in those environments. But we would typically wake up early, fix coffee and, uh, and crush one meal in the morning for breakfast. And then when we were out, I would usually have some type of a protein bar I can't remember. I think it was power bars, the ones that I, I bought, but just something that was kind of almost like a workout bar that I had. I could get a little bit of protein, get a good amount of calories and get some sugar. We would like to just take a second to help you make the final decision on your new Kydex holster. We the People offers all American made holsters designed for everyday carry. Whether it's inside the waistband or outside, these holsters are made with quality and don't break your bank like other high-end holster companies. And plus, they offer free shipping on all orders in the USA. So go have a look. And while you're at it, check out what else they have to offer. Merch link in bio. And, uh, and have that while I was out to move around because you kind of, as you come off of breakfast and you kind of start to hit that late morning, early afternoon slump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would usually start to drink a lot of water then, and then eat one of those bars or half one of those bars to kind of replenish myself and, and kind of get me through that last little bit. And then when we got back, I would either, if I knew we were going back out that afternoon, I would eat like a good lunch, something uh, pretty heavy on the protein. And then if we, I knew we were just going to glass that afternoon. So a lot less moving, yeah. I yeah. would just save that and eat a good big dinner. Okay. That makes sense. It's a good balance. Like cause I've heard people say that those, those amount and those uh, dehydrated meals after a few days on it, your, your get, your gut can kind of get a little rumbly. Oh yeah. So, uh, and it, and it, it matters to to pay attention to what they're going to do. So, um, you know, one thing, and luckily I've eaten uh, my fair share of MREs and other mountain <laughs> yeah, meals, but um, <laughs> so I know kind of what to expect, but uh, I would suggest if you're, maybe you're looking at a couple of like flavors that you're going to like or something, buy them before you ever go hunting weeks in advance and go ahead and just eat one for dinner and see what it does. Or eat one for breakfast and see what it does to your body because you don't want to be, Mm-hmm. Uh, out there and eat one for breakfast and get out in, into the bush and then you know you're Give you the staying there pooping your pants yeah like yeah. You know, and it, that's just not a fun experience for one but two it can it can put you hydrate you yeah 
Yeah, that's uh, that's very true. So now this, I got, we're almost to the we're wrapping up here. So my next one is: Is there anything absurd you take on your trips that you feel compelled to do that would not be in the textbook instruction manual related to skills in survival? Like anything Austin Lesser and uh, any that your friends would make fun of you for? Oh man, that's a tough one. Um, Man, I well, I mean, I have a lucky pair of underwear. I don't know if that counts. That's, uh, hey, people have what to do, you know. It's like, but but is that something that somebody would give you give you shit for, you know? I I think the guys at Fieldcraft probably would, um, <laughs> because it's an old. It's it's a. I don't want to say they're old because that sounds gross, but they're old, and uh, it's funny. I got them as a gag gift, but for some reason, I've always had like super good luck when I wear them. So uh-huh. I save them for special occasions. But they're they actually say like they're like uh, they have like little tender emblems on them, and they say swipe right and like all that kind of stupid <laughs> stuff. So they're like pink and red. So. But, oh, that's uh, hilarious! Yeah, that yeah. is funny. So, <laughs> what is your uh, next bucket list trip? Oof. Um, so we actually just planned um, a fishing trip to Alaska that we're going to be going to. Um, and hang on one second, let me find out exactly. I got it right here on my phone. Um, where it is exactly we're going. Okay. Oh, man, I'm so pumped for it. Uh, that sounds exciting. Oh man. Like, and I'm going with Kevin Estella and I, I don't know if you know who he is, but I do not Kevin, uh, Kevin Estella is, is one of the, um, like one of the premier, uh, survival instructors that I've ever met. And he, and we just got him on with full cross survival full time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he's been running his own show for a long time. Um, you can find him on Instagram at Estella Wild. And, um, but he's, dude, he's like, he's got a book out, 101 uh, Things You Need to Survive in the Woods. And, dude, he's, like, I can't say enough about him because he, a lot of what I even am in practicing now is things that I learned from him over the years. And, um, and he's just, he's been around the block and he, he knows the area that we're going to really well. Um, and it's this one stretch of the river. I can't find it exactly where it was, man. He just, he sent me a message the other day and told me that he booked it, but, um, we're going up there. I think it's going to be for five days, uh, to fish and, and, and talk to a couple of guys up there. And we're actually going to be talking to, uh, a guy about his, his bear attack story. Uh, oh, I don't want to cool. spoil who it is, but, um, yeah. So we're actually going to retrace his footsteps and talk about what he did to survive and, um, in that whole thing. So that it's going to be a really cool trip. That's been freaking pretty badass. Yeah. So is there, is there anything else you want to say before we part ways? Um, the biggest thing I would, I would always encourage anybody to do is to, to get training, like to, to train and practice with what you carry. Uh, like the worst thing you can ever do is just buy something because you think it looks cool on the shelf or online. And then, or because such and such carries it and say, well, Austin, Austin told me, you know, uh, to go buy this kit. Well, you know, yeah, sure. I, that's what I like, but train with what you have because what works for me isn't necessarily going to work for you. And what works Mm -hmm. for you doesn't mean it's going to work for somebody else or, you know, and so on and so forth, but buy things, train with them, practice with them, get proficient with them because, um, when you practice things and you're learning a skill and you're trying to do something that 
literally could save your life. And it's what you're going to be relying on to save your life. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't practice until you get it right. You practice until you can't get it wrong. It's a very, that's some wise words there, my friend. It's a very wise <laughs> words. Cause I do the exact same thing here. Cause like, cause you can, you can complacent Cause it's like, I don't, I primarily bow hunt. So it's like, you got, you got to practice with your, 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 your base, your spring layer. Cause I do, tur- I do uh, spring Turkey. Then yep. I do my light late or early season layer. And then I do my mid season layer and my late season layer. But also you got to practice with your pack on because there's been, there's been times where I've walked in and like my wife can, can vouch for, it, but we had a doe show up 50, 15 yards out and she didn't give me an opportune shot, but we were both ready there. And it's like, we both mm-hmm. had practice with it. So it's like, mm-hmm. we both had, we're at full draw waiting for her to make him make a move. Cause that's like, I've made a decision. Like I thought she was, she was, because this was back when we were hunting on private land. I made a decision like yeah. she was old enough to take off the land. And so this mm-hmm. way, then all the other does can have a chance to get in bread too. And it's like, the thing is the doe just kind of backed up and reared backwards back into the brush. So it wasn't mm-hmm. a shot that we were able to pull off, but yeah, it's like, I know exactly what you mean on that right there. Yeah, so it's, it's everything, man. Yeah, but thank you. I appreciate you taking time on your day and coming out and, and coming down on the podcast and, and BSing with me here. I want to say thank you for your service to our country. I also want to thank all the men and women that, that have served and are currently serving. Yeah. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate that. It's been a joy. I was proud to serve, but I uh, look forward to coming back on, man. Maybe I'm going to have a few, few hunts this season we can talk about. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll get lucky one of these days and come out and get a, a white tail with you. That'd be fantastic, man, here. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the, uh, of the Bucks of America podcast. Uh, it's going to drop like it normally does on Wednesday. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, t- Facebook, Twitter. You can find the podcast on every single platform out there. Um, I also want to shout out to the uh we the people holsters that's they just i recently uh, worked on an affiliate link with those guys so it's like if you're looking for a new holster check out their gear i personally have several of their holsters now and magazine holsters so everybody check them on out so thank you everybody for tuning in you guys have a great night